we have this pathologically self-destructive approach to, to national security, security in general, um, is that we think of security in terms of race, right? And we invent racist uh, monsters um, that then we feel um, we need to um, defeat at all costs. And, and in doing so, um, you know, this is what this is what foreign policy basically is for the United States: is inventing is inventing threats and then mobilizing resources to tackle them. But in doing so, actually generating threats that didn't exist before, and therefore entering into a spiral of violence. Right? That's the story actually of Iraq and Afghanistan. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. My name is Nadia Benyusa. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm the advocacy director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I am live with you tonight from Lenape Hoking, what is now New York, and it is an honor to be part of this four-part series that we've been organizing with Haymarket Books. This is the last and final event of the series. It's called The Next 20 Years, Building Towards a Demilitarized and Decolonized Future of Safety for All. And the four-part series called Just Resistance was marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Thank you all so much for joining us for the first three parts where we asked questions you know, whose security are we talking about? We grasped at the root. So this is not the last 20 years, but the last 400 years of U.S. policies of colonization and imperialism and militarism. And lastly, we centered stories of survival. And tonight is super special because we're looking ahead. What is the next 20 years? What is the world that we imagine? And I'm so honored to partner on this final event with a longtime partner of CCR, the Immigrant Defense Project. And we've worked together for over 10 years on a variety of immigrant rights, advocacy, Freedom of Information Act requests and reports, mapping ICE raids. Immigrant Defense Project are a group of principled, devoted organizers, strategists, human rights defenders, and world builders which is why I'm so thrilled that tonight this conversation is being guided by Mizui Aizeki, the Deputy Director of the Immigrant Defense Project. I'm gonna read a quick bio and then turn this conversation and you all over to Mizui and to an incredible group of panelists. So Mizui's work focuses on ending the injustices, including criminalization, imprisonment, and exile at the intersections of the criminal and immigration systems. Mizue guides IDP's local and state policy work, including the ICE out of courts campaign and IDP's campaigns to end the growing entanglement between local law enforcement and ICE. Mizue also leads IDP's project on surveillance, technology, and immigration policing, which includes building community and legal defenses against ICE raids and the growing homeland security apparatus. Mizue has organized around racial justice, workers' rights, and the policing and deportation of immigrants 
in the interior and at the U.S.-Mexico border for over 20 years. Mzue is also a photographer, and Mzue's work has appeared in Dying to Live, a story of U.S. immigration in the age of global apartheid, and Policing the Planet, why the policing crisis led to Black Lives Matter. What's also exciting, and it's a sneak peek for you all and lovers of Haymarket books, because Mazue is also a co-editor of a book that is forthcoming as part of Haymarket's abolitionist paper series entitled Resisting Global Apartheid and Technologies of Violence. We're so honored that you're here, Mazue. Thank you so much for guiding us. Enjoy the conversation, um, and thank you all. Thank you so much, Nadia, and welcome to uh, all our panelists. Um, so in exciting to be gathered here today, but also to all of those of you viewing um, to engage in an incredibly important conversation in terms of um, building our future together. Um, so again, the title of tonight's event and um, is the next 20 years, building toward a demilitarized and decolonized future of safety for all. And from the abolition of borders to the complete defunding of the military industrial complex within a future of economic, racial, gender, and climate justice, we hope to discuss the necessity of imagination as well as the strategies, tactics, and principles we need to win the world we deserve. So that's the description of our event tonight. I'm just going to talk a little bit about, you know, the past 20 years post 9-11, you know, founded a year after uh, later af under George W. Bush, President Bush's post 9-11 war on terror, the Department of Homeland Security represents the institutionalization of what is effectively a permanent state of emergency. Um, it's a institutionalized response to what are framed as never ending threats in the form of unauthorized migration, crime and terrorism among um, others. And, you know, this just to underscore that the establishment of the DHS constituted the largest restructuring of the federal government since the end of World War II under a broad and continually expanding mission of homeland security. Um, and its reach extends far beyond the interior and borders of the United States. You know, we recently, the Immigrant De Defense Project, issued a um, report called Smart Borders or Humane World, where we highlight how the U.S. views border policing as a global enterprise. You know, they've pressured over 100 countries to sign agreements to police migration, and there's over 48 ICE offices worldwide, as well as continually expanding initiatives to collect and share biographic and biometric information with police and governments ac across the world of those people who have been deemed to be a threat. But of course, these regimes of exclusion and surveillance and othering are not new um, and not didn't begin with DHS, right? But um, there is continuity, continuity and consistency that has been turbocharged with this incredible amount of resources and political momentum, which is fueling this current political moment. So in we're very much looking forward to this conversation with our panelists who will introduce themselves shortly. Um, and, you know, what we're really hoping is for these collected, incredible um, organizers, visionaries and um, thinkers to share with us uh, some of the crucial things that you think we need to know about history in order to be able to challenge the present as well as imagine the future. And why is it that a deep understanding of ideological and institutional roots leads us to demand something 
that completely transforms these systems. And so I'm going to turn it over to the panelists to introduce themselves, maybe share a little bit of what is your story and what brings you into this conversation and into the struggle of not only resisting the world, but imagining and building the world we deserve. So we'll start with Arun. Uh, thank you, Mizue. And um, yeah, hello, everyone. My name's Arun Kuntanani. Um, I do um, kind of writing and research and a little activism around some of these issues that we're going to be talking about specifically uh, in relation to the war on terror. Um, I mean, how I, you know, how I got into this was, you know, when the war on terror began uh, 20 years ago, I was, I was in Britain and I was involved in the anti-racist movement there. And um, the kind of things we were working on were um, kind of, you know, there'd been a kind of upsurge of, of um, racist attacks by, by kind of white racist gangs on, on black people and Asian people in Britain in the 90s. And we were, we were trying to deal with that. And there was, you know, issues of deaths in custody of, of, um, for, in our communities, deaths in the custody of the police and prisons and immigration officers. We were fighting deportations. And then, you know, when the war on terror began, um, there was this process where you know we we had this dramatic expansion of surveillance of criminalization coming at us um and we had to start looking at questions of war and imperialism again um and, and then i came to the us and over the, the kind of following 20 years um you know the work we were doing was defensive right we were trying to stop the wars we were trying to stop the the counterterrorism policy stop the surveillance and so on um and there was no real mass movement at that time right so um, we had no choice but to try and work uh, almost like doing lobbying style campaigns in DC and, and try to use techniques from advertising to try and do message testing and all this kind of stuff to try and find some way to push back against all this stuff. And, and if we're honest about it, none of that really worked. And we were just on the defensive, on the back foot the whole time. Um, and and um, we didn't have many victories, if any. And, and, you know, so I think what has happened that's interesting over the last few years and that, that I've been involved in as well is that, you know, some of us are starting to say, well, what would it look like instead of this constant reactive mode, what would it look like to actually um, put forward our own kind of positive conception of what security might mean, right, for us and our communities? And, and in doing that, um, we had the legacy of abolitionist politics in the United States um, to build upon, which was essentially asking the same question in a different context. And so we started um, to think about applying a kind of abolitionist approach, not only to prisons and policing within the United States, but also the whole question of national security and the kind of global footprint of national security that the United States has. And that's how we get to, I think, the kind of conversation we're hopefully going to have today about you know, what kind of vision we might have for the future. Thank you. Thank you, Arun. Lara? Hi, everybody. I'm Lara Kiswani. I'm speaking to you from um, Ohlone Territory, Oakland, California. I am the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. We serve and organize um, poor and working class Arab and Muslims um, to challenge forced migration, racism, militarism. And Iraq actually came out of a lot of work post 9-11, where we were defending against our community members being forced into special registration, um, organizing large anti-war demonstrations. And I myself come to you as a Palestinian. I'm from Beit Iqsa, Aqir, Palestine. My parents are refugees. Um, and I was in college um, when um, during the time of 9-11 and also at that time became very politicized around understanding internationalism, being mentored by those who came out of the movements against apartheid, against um, 
um, coups in Central America and Latin America, and also the Palestinian liberation movement and understanding that as an internationalist struggle, but also being at the receiving end of political repression, which very much heightened my understanding of the war on terror, its impacts on us in diaspora, um, but also the direct um, tie link between the political repression we faced here in the criminalization and war, imperial wars in our homelands. And a lot of our work today is a reflection of that and a commitment to undoing the conditions that force our communities to need these types of services in the first place um, and to be able to fight for a dignity and liberation for all our people from here to our homelands. That's, thank you, Laura. Welcome, Timmy. Hi, everybody. My name is Timmy. My pronouns are he, him, his. Um, I'm tuning into you from land traditionally stewarded by the Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples, um, otherwise known as Chicago, out in the Midwest, in the so-called U.S. Um, what brings me here today really is just I'm really excited just to connect um, with other strugglers, thinkers, activists to end war in all its its all its forms. Um, in all forms of militarized state violence um, and try to think through these things together, learn from my co-panelists um, and build relationship. Um, I'm the son of a Vietnamese immigrant who lived through the U.S. colonial war in Vietnam. And I've been, you know, part of my journey has been making sense of understanding, um, sitting with and healing from the traumas and legacies of U.S. imperialism, how that and how that shape has shaped my life and the entire legacy of my family. Um, and ultimately, you know, I'm here because I'm committed to healing from that trauma. And, you know, I was steeped in a, I, I, I was learned, I've learned a lot from black feminist movements and, and transformative justice movements. And um, those movements have really pushed me to understand healing as really also needing to transform the conditions that have allowed for the different forms of harm, and including state violence, including imperial violence, U.S. imperial violence. Um, not just so we can build for a world, a world without war, but to build a war, a world, um, abolish the conditions that allow for war um, and imperialism. And so I'm excited to get into that with y'all today. And that's a little bit about me. Thank you, Timmy. Um, Fernando. Thank you. So happy to be here. Uh, my name is Fernando Martí. Uh, I'm an artist. I'm a printmaker, um, part of a artist collective known as Just Seeds Artist Cooperative. Um, I also uh, wear another hat as a housing activist. I'm co-director of a housing justice organization in uh, San Francisco known as the Council of Community Housing Organizations. Um, I use he and him pronouns, and uh, I'm coming from uh, Ramaytushaloni territory um, in the West Coast. So um, I think you want to say a little bit of, of our story, how we came here. Uh, I'm originally an immigrant uh, from Ecuador, from rural areas, grew up um, in a farm, came to the U.S. Uh, pretty, pretty young as a, a five-year-old, uh, grew up in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, you know, as an artist, um, making art has always been part of my life. Uh, but making political art, um, the, my first kind of experience of really putting 
um, art out as a statement uh, was during the first Gulf War, um, creating political posters and um, kind of having a, a deep sense of uh, sadness and anxiety about what was going on um, and and wanting to express that. Um, and I think, you know, uh, over the years, learning um, from the experiences of others and, and learning uh, in relationship with others, particularly with, with organized communities and, and building um, visions of the future um, with organized folks. And I'll talk a little bit about, about that uh, later, but that's a little bit about how I came to be in this room with all of you. Great, thank you. So we're going to move into uh, the questions for our panelists. Um, starting here with Arun, your book, The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism, and the Domestic War on Terror, which I keep next to my desk, by the way. It's a really excellent book. Um, it provides an incredible history of the ideologies and policing strategies that came together in the war on terror. Um, could you please share with us some of the crucial things that you think um, really stand out for you in terms of the history in order to understand as well as to challenge the present? Yeah, sure. So, you know, like, I think the first thing to say here is, um, you know, over, over a million men, women and children were needlessly killed in the war on terror, right? We don't know how many um, because we don't count that number. But um, that's, you know, that's the, and that's just happened without us really even thinking about what that means, right? And what and what that what that violence really did. Um, 14 million people made refugees from Iraq and Afghanistan, and then violently prevented from from seeking sanctuary in the in you know countries in Europe and the United States that were um, partly responsible for making them refugees in the first place, right? Like we haven't we haven't even begun to to think that through and, and hold hold people accountable for, for that, right? Um, and and. But you know, then there's the bigger question of well, how how was it possible for that scale of violence to happen? Um, not in you know in the kind of uh, 19th century colonial period then, but in in our recent past. And 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 how and why did it happen? Right? And we haven't really done enough thinking about that stuff even now, like 20 years on from when it began. And and the usual answer on the left that I think is is given is, you know, well, it's the military industrial complex. And that's sure, you know, that's definitely part of it. But I think we need to go beyond that. Um, I think the answer, the answer to, to you know why this happened or what was going on um, is actually there if you look at the the um, the statements and the speeches that were given um, by the war on terror's advocates at the time. They're quite open about what they were they were saying. If you go back, for example, and look at um, uh, the, the kind of stuff that um, the British Prime Minister Tony Blair was was saying at the time, you know, he was talking about this violence, these wars, the whole infrastructure of the war on terror was, you know, he said it's not about regime change, it's about values change, right? And what he meant was, um, you know, we need to, um, you know, go to war in all these countries, not to prevent terrorism, but precisely to, to tear up the social fabric so that a whole new culture and a whole new set of values could be imposed on the um in the in the red the debris of, of destroying countries right and he was saying that the cultural problems in islam as he saw them were so deeply embedded in that culture that they can only be dealt with through the kind of industrial violence that that leads to millions of people dying right and so um you know anti-muslim racism has been central indispensable to, to the war on terror um because it's only by by thinking that somehow there's something barbaric 
by nature in Islam that you can justify the um, the invasions, the torture, the surveillance, um, uh, uh, the assassination, and so on. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that we haven't reckoned with that, and and um, uh, and I think we need to, you know, we need to say, well, look, this was when you when you understand that, then what this starts to look like is this is genocidal. You know, this is genocidal. It's basically saying um, we we're going to try and eliminate huge swathes of these populations because of some racist theory about their culture, right? And and you know, genocidal violence doesn't always announce itself in the kind of Nazi style of kind of over over kind of fanatical hatred. It can also come in the kind of managerial language of, of cultural reform, which is what we what we saw from the war on terror, right? Um, and, and you know, what they t- talked about was radicalization. Right, um, this kind of central concept, which I write a lot about in the book, and like this kind of it's a bogus theory really of radicalization. And what they were saying is there's some kind of process by which um, moderate Muslims are gripped by a kind of extremist ideology and turned into um, violent fanatics by that process, right? And uh, all kinds of research was, you know, bullshit research was done to try and track this process of radicalization. But what it meant was that you could justify vast systems of surveillance to try and track well you know amongst these the amongst muslim populations in the west or anywhere else you know we need surveillance to be able to spot the ones that are radicalizing the ones that are becoming extremists right once you've identified an extremist once someone's been labeled an extremist muslim it means you know um, closing down the mosque, uh, closing down the community organisation, um, regulating clothing, criminalising speech, uh, shutting down bank accounts, um, even um, you know cancelling your citizenship. Um, if you live in the Middle East, Africa, or South Asia, you know, subject to execution from the air by missile-bearing drones, uh, transportation to secret locations to be tortured, um, and and in the cases of, of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, you know, in, entire countries destroyed. Now, the war on terror has been declared over. Um, I suspect we're kind of just entering a new phase where it's where it's going to be happening. Um, without some of the other rhetoric and without it being a kind of news story. Um, but, uh, you know, because the broader infrastructure that's been created through it is still is still in place. So, what, you know, what that looks like is, you know, we're still spending um, over a trillion dollars a year on national security, right, which would be enough to buy uh, vaccines for COVID for everyone in the world and to create a global safety net to prevent anyone from falling into poverty because of the virus. Um, that's just one year's military budget. Um, we still have 2 million US military personnel um, stationed across the world in 800 bases in 90 different countries. Last year, we ran covert operations in 154 countries. Uh, we have 3,800 nuclear warheads. Uh, we plan to spend another $100 billion buying uh, hundreds more. Um, we remain the world's largest arms exporter. Um, and and this you know this is the core issue right that we we need to focus on is that whole infrastructure is just taken for granted um, in the in in DC in the policy making process um, it's it's just um, accepted as the background it's not even a question and and yet it provide it doesn't provide security for any of us right I mean it didn't prevent um, you know now what is it well over half a million people in the United States dying from COVID, um, you know, the massively disproportionate number for, you know, for the richest country in the world. Um, it, it, it's not, it, it's in terms of the, the biggest threat to us, the, the biggest security threat to us right now is climate change. And and the 
Pentagon, you know, the US military is the, the largest institutional emitter of carbon in the world. Um, you know, so it's, and, and it's, you know, the US military is using the climate crisis to say to, to us, um, we need more money right now because we're facing this dangerous world where there's going to be kind of extremist threats and migration uh, caused by climate crisis. So we need the US military all the more. So it turned a problem that faces the entire planet um, that they're causing into an excuse to get even more um, resources, right? This is the general, you know, this is symptomatic of the general pattern of the whole way that that security is understood in the United States is that um, the policies that are supposed to make us more secure always make us less secure, right? Like it's, it's a pathological record of failure. And that happens for two reasons, right? One is that we continue to have this fantasy that um, our security can come from uh, unchallenged domination of the world, right? That, that, it, you know, that, that we have to be um, spending, uh, you know, more than the entire rest of the world on military um, resources. Um, that unless we can, and, uh, you know, it's that, that idea of, of you know, what, what's in, understood in DC as US primacy, again, unquestioned by, by you know, bipartisan, unquestioned policies um, for liberals as much as conservatives, right? Um, that assumption remains in place. Um, the kind of fantasy that we can go back to this brief moment in the 1990s when the US was, um, you know, able to, to dominate the world entirely, but not in that world anymore, but it's, that fantasy remains, right? Um, and, and, and then, you know, the second thing is, is we've got to come to terms with the fact that we're in a in a, in a world where we're going to have to collaborate with other people, and and what that means is coming to terms with how we, for a brief moment in the 20th century, and especially at the end of the 20th century, were able to have an unchallenged domination. How did we get that through imperialist wars, through white supremacy, through genocidal violence, uh, settler colonialism? Right, we have to come to terms with that. Um, and this, you know, is because the second reason that we keep we have this pathologically self-destructive approach to, to national security, security in general, um, is that we think of security in terms of race, right? And we invent racist uh, monsters um, that then we feel um, we need to um, defeat at all costs, and, and in doing so. Um, you know, this is what this is what foreign policy basically is for the United States: is inventing is inventing threats and then mobilizing resources to tackle them. But in doing so, actually generating threats that didn't exist before, and therefore entering into a spiral of violence. Right? That's the story actually of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but it's a much broader story too. In a sense, you know, we've never in this country stopped um, fighting so-called savages at our frontiers even as the frontier is not what it was in the 19th century when it, we're fighting indigenous people. But now in you know in the last hundred years, it's the global frontiers of the war on drugs, the war on terror, the Cold War. And that's, you know, that's the thing that remains in place, um, that the war on terror continues and that we need to find a way to stop for all our sex. Thank you so much, Arun, for sharing that. I mean, so um, condensing some things, you know, the the centrality of anti-Muslim racism, this uh, infrastructure that's been put in place of the war on terror, which is domestic and global, and also, you know, these fantasies of security, um, very importantly, this invention and kind of um, this invention of what you call racist monsters, but the threats and the, the othering eternally. Um, so turning to Lada, 
You know, in your work, you have situated Palestine within a global fight against racism and colonialism. As we reflect on 20 years of a post 9-11 human rights crisis, you know, why uh, and imagine the next 20 years, why must decolonization be central to our demands? Well, first, thank you so much for hosting this event and allowing me to speak alongside comrades and learn from them in this process. I also really appreciate the framing of this series, the to vision forward. It's important to understand today, to understand today. It's essential we reflect on the last 20 years and understand history. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I'm going to try to situate Palestine and Palestinian self-determination within the war on terror. So just as I understand Palestine to be instrumental in understanding U.S. imperialism, following that logic, it would be important to understand Palestine within the context of the war on terror. Looking back at 2001, I was an undergraduate student. We had started Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, we were witnessing a renewed energy in Palestinian solidarity activism here in the United States. The Palestinian Al-Aqsa Intifada, the um, uprising, was a sustained grassroots uprising that it was at that point one year in motion. And um, it was understood as a response um, and a resistance to the failure of the peace process, the ongoing Israeli settler colonial expansion. It was provoked by the war criminal Israeli Prime Minister Errol Sharon, who visited the Jerusalem Al-Aqsa compound. And for the Arab world, it was a renewed hope for self-determination and liberation against the despots and imperial forces. This uprising, little did we know, was about to face brutal repression, not only locally by the colonial state of Israel, but globally through the U.S.-Israeli partnership in the war on terror. Um, from the beginning, of course, of the uprisings, Palestinians faced brutal repression by the state of Israel and, of course, backed by the economic, the military and political support of the United States. But just a few days after 9-11, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon said to the United States, Everyone has his own bin Laden. Arafat is our bin Laden. So the ways in which Israel orchestrated its suppression of Palestinian resistance through military operations, surveillance, militarized borders and checkpoints, imprisonment, torture, and other means of population control became a model for the U.S.'s war on terror. So it comes to no surprise that Israel exponentially expanded its military industrial complex in the coming years. Israel and the U.S. targeted um, their military and political arsenal at the same targets, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. 9-11 um, attacks provided Israel with a, the right conditions to achieve its long-standing political goals in the region, just as it provided the U.S. the conditions to expand its hegemony in our region in the Middle East. So then not only did the U.S. destroy Afghanistan, as Arun mentioned, in Iraq, kill a million people, imprison, torture, and make refugees of millions until today, but Israel also expanded its settler colonial um, colonies across the West Bank. It built its apartheid wall. It institutionalized an apartheid regime that encompasses all of historic Palestine and all Palestinians. And it continues to be an instrument in partnering to maintain U.S. hegemony in West Asia and North Africa, right? So 20 years later, 
The imperialist, racist, colonial, repressive aims of the war on terror are now widely understood, at least amongst progressives, right? Um, and European colonial wars, we all know, set out to civilize the barbaric. The war on terror just gave barbarism a new name. It destroyed Arab countries. It attempted to crush the potential of Arab resistance to imperialist wars and U.S.-backed authoritarian regimes. And it expanded here in the United States the prison industrial complex, and did so all in the name of democracy. So we know that the ideologies behind the war on terror are not new, as was mentioned, you know, and we they were used to further criminalize the ongoing, actually to further the ongoing criminalization of other black and brown indigenous people, migrants here in the United States, through increased funding streams, new repressive policies, information sharing, interagency collaboration, the Joint Terrorism Task Force and fusion centers of the, of the world, and technology development. And we know that in this world of racial capitalism, the problems of inequalities that we're seeing more and more so every day are solved by intense militarism. Um, this was and is the logic of the war on terror. It was the logic of the Cold War and the colonial settlement of this country itself, right? So war is in fact commonly taught as the normal and necessary way of defending freedom. So the, the world knows well that the resistance movements to this, to colonialism and imperialism from Palestine to Algeria, to Iraq, to Yemen is legal by international law and legitimate. It's a legitimate form of self-defense. In order to justify the brutal attacks against them, they have to construct language and policies to delegitimize and criminalize them. And as was already mentioned, we know that this is done by further expanding military warfare. And these wars, and not just military warfare, right? The wars and policies of the war on terror are just the latest justification of the ongoing colonial and imperial pillage of, of the Western world. So as we review the war on terror and its impact um, and the aims of the imperial wars in the Arab region and the role of that in service of maintaining US political and economic hegemony, and also in renewing and expanding global fascism and authoritarianism, then we must also review the role that movements for self-determination serve in undoing this, right? And one cannot do so without centering the anti-colonial struggle of Palestinians and other indigenous people globally in challenging U.S. imperialism. So as we look forward, we must absolutely understand anti-colonialism and ongoing movements for self-determination as the key to unlocking the potential for all movements for social justice. And we already see today the attempts to annihilate the black liberation struggle have failed. The US and Israeli partnership in global repression and militarism are rupturing and failing. The, you know, the world is now recognizing and questioning what's happening and everyone is contending with the issue of what is our position on Palestine, right? Even as they prop up military coups, undermine democracy from Haiti to the Philippines, try to we would be doing a disservice um, to look forward without understanding the necessity to support and bolster movements for self-determination and against imperial dominance, exploitation, and climate destruction. So as Palestinians, alongside our other indigenous siblings across the world, we don't approach our struggle with despair because we know that our 
unrelenting resistance has also been an incubator for the world's most hopeful emancipatory visions for liberation, for right relationships to land and people, for multiracial feminist democracy. So our task ahead as we vision, I would argue, would be one that draws on the lessons of the last 20 years and last 400 years and works to bolster, to resource, to support and expand the terrain for movements that were most impacted by these last 20 years in order to expand the terrain for all movements for justice. Wow, thank you so much, Lara. It's a very, uh, you did an incredible job of weaving together uh, complicated history, bringing it to the present, but also very importantly, centering um, resistance and resilience as we fight towards the future. So turning to Timmy, building off of um, Arun and Lara's reflections, uh, we're hoping you could share a bit of your analysis and work on militarization, its connection to the prison industrial complex, anti-colonial struggles, and the requirement that we divest from militarism and reinvest in our communities. Thank you. And I just, I just got to say how grateful I am to be um, and with this crew in particular, I'm learning so much. And as an organizer, I feel like I have such a deep appreciation for getting the insights and analysis um, from folks like you, Lara and Arun. So thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm taking notes. So um, I forgot to mention this in my intro, but yeah, so my name is Timmy. I'm, I was a co-starter of a project called Dissenters. Um, and, you know, dissenters started as a collective of myself and other young organizers. As a collective of myself and other young organizers from around Turtle Island, coming from different backgrounds, from some of us like myself came more from police, prison abolition movement work, folks from migrant justice work, Palestine liberation work, um, climate justice work, who got together um, to think through the question of internationalism and war and militarism um, in a period where we felt like within the movement ecosystem in the U.S., the so-called U.S. left, that there wasn't um, as much, there wasn't space and leadership at, uh, of young, particularly young Black, Indigenous, people of color, youth um, around this issue of war and imperialism. And so we spent you know, several years organizing, connecting with folks around the country, um, strategizing, and ultimately we launched uh, the organization in January of 2020. Um, fast forward to right now, there are chap over 25 chapters across Turtle Island um, running direct action, strategic direct action campaigns targeting specific targets, including trying to get military recruiters off of campuses, police, local police and university police off campuses, um, as well as uh, divestment campaigns tar targeting the top five weapons uh, manufacturers. And um, that's been called the divest from death campaign. And specifically, those targets were important for us because it was a connecting point um, as far as um, targets that were have been raining death upon many of the different uh, communities and di diaspora, domestic, international, of which our membership and our organizations uh, are a part of. Um, I will say dec decolonization and an anti-colonial perspective has been foundational to our organization as well. I mean, right now, uh, 
we have a chapter on Hawaii that's mobilizing for the recent uh, spill, freshwater spill at the hands of the U.S. Navy base that is literally poisoning freshwater um, all around um, Hawaii and that folks are responding to and mobilizing to right now. Um, I'm also, and this comes back to the question, um, but so in addition to being on the advisory committee of dissenters, I also work more locally in Chicago with an organization called President Neighborhood Arts and Education Process uh, Project. And what we do is to build, seek to build um, relationships of reciprocity with incarcerated, um, between incarcerated and free world scholars, activists, organizers, and artists. Um, so what uh, specifically right now at Stateville Prison, which that's a maximum security prison in the state of Illinois. Um, so one thing that hearing the critical history of the war on terror, that's something that I really made me think about in, in the work that I do at the prison, but also as it relates to kind of the anti-war perspective that we're kind of talking around is every week when we go in to this maximum security prison, um, if you walk, once you walk through a series of gates, you go to the cafeteria where all the staff, the prison guards eat their lunch. Um, you'll walk into the, you'll walk into the um, cafeteria if you need to grab a bottle of water. And on that, on that wall in the prison, you'll see this mural, right? And on that mural, you'll see a bunch of prison guards working. Uh, you'll see a school maybe a couple of police officers and then you'll see a picture of a prison guard that's kind of half half painted one side is the uh, orange crush which is the name for the sw essentially internal SWAT team of within a prison that's get called to suppress riots and resistance inside the prison and then the other half of that painting of the person is a military a person in military uniform um, and that mural to me is so striking because I think it really speaks to this question of um, solidarity, right? And how, uh, and imaginary in terms of who do the folks working for, uh, uh, that are running, operating the prison industrial complex, how do they understand, um, them make sense of who they're fighting for and, and, and with, right? And they understand that the project of incarceration and the project of mass incarceration is actually the same political project of, the folks waging war, killing black and brown people abroad, right? And I think that's important <clears throat> to understand when we talk about international solidarity and folks trying to resist these systems of oppression, um, not because we have to all be organized in unison and doing the same things, but speaking to this point of international solidarity and struggle for us at dissenters, <clears throat> you know, we see ourselves um, um, you know, building and co-strategizing alongside um, and trying to, you know, work in solidarity with movements all around the world and popular movements all around the world resisting um, state violence, resisting capitalist and corporate, you know, powers all, all over the world. Um, and I don't have much to, to say other than, you know, it, it, it's like we're living in a, a dystopian dream. I mean, just the other day, you know, they just ratified a six, $768 billion defense bill increased again. 
Um, and I think, I mean, this just connects right directly to, I mean, we are in a prison nation where at the same time that we're spending $768 billion on a military budget, we have 2.3 million incarcerated people living in this country that we've built, we're spending millions of dollars for violence to incarcerate and, and, and dispose of uh, what the state deems as surplus populations within, within this settler colony. Right. And it just, you know, we're, we're, we're waging war and funding war abroad while we're also funding, um, you know, systems of capture and containment domestically. Right. Um, and I think that that, is important the pi the, the prison system you know what angela davis and ruthie gilmore we call us the, the the prison nation we're a prison nation that actually kind of troubles this idea of the invest divest framework right because we actually are investing in death we are investing in all these things uh, at the expense of a social wage at the expense of life-affirming resources um and where it stands right now we're, we're seeing how that hasn't changed um with this new administration where we're getting lukewarm reforms at a time when we need to be when when people are dying when poverty and criminalization are the norm um and you know one thing uh i wanted to touch on that i think is also an important connection in terms of the you know thinking about the overlapping over there's there's so many overlaps between uh connection points of violence between the prison industrial complex of the U.S. and the military industrial complex. One I think that is important to name is how we, we are in war is exporting the PIC. You know, from the year of 2004 to 2017, uh, the carceral apparatus in Iraq exploded. The prison population rate exploded, right? So we are exporting the PIC um, in different shapes and forms. Um, but one thing I want to wanted to point out that I don't, I haven't seen a lot of folks talking about, you know, we, we know that the prison system globally is where resistance movements are always, you know, uh, always face oppression and suppression. It's where resistance movement has come to die essentially. And so I think something that's, you know, in our work at, at Stateville of, of folks domestically who are now, who are dealing, one of the biggest issues we're dealing with is long-term sentences, right? The U.S. is unique in its, in the way that it's, it is, is used, utilizes life sentences, life without parole sentences and long-term sentencing, right? Um, and I think it's important for particularly movements seeking to all resistance movements, especially ones based here in the U.S., to be understanding, um, the struggle to challenge incarceration as well as long-term sentencing, which is, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, just new iterations of death sentences, essentially, um, specifically for activists and movements for justice. Because I mean, uh, folks heard recently that there was somebody named Jessica uh, Reznicek, who was a land, uh, who was, is now doing eight years in a Minnesota federal prison for sabotaging the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's eight years for land defense and decolonial land defense work, right? Those are the type of, that's the apparatus we're up against. So I think there's lots of connections between the PIC and the MIC and, you know, dissenters hopes to be bridging those connections um, and building out an aboli a global abolitionist framework to understand the ways that we can resist it. Um, and yeah, well, let's stop there.
Thank you, um, Timmy. And, you know, as we think about moving from this dystopian dream, as you called it, or a nightmare, right, into uh, the future that we uh, need to envision, you know, Fernando, it's uh, so great to have you here to, to be able to share your work and your thinking on this. You know, it's so clear that artists and creatives will play a critical role in charting that future as we seek to cultivate our collective imagination. So we're very much looking forward to you sharing about your work um, and us being able to see it um, and the responsibility of the artist to unlock our imaginations about the future we're, bu we're building. So thank you, Fernando. Thanks, Mizui. Um, you know, I wanted to, and and I don't, I don't have the the exact quote, but one of the things I, as as a kid, I was a uh, a science fiction nerd. I loved loved science fiction of all kinds, and I remember recently uh, hearing Adrian Marie Brown and Walidai Marisha talking about um, the roots of science fiction in slavery and. The, the role of being able um, to imagine an alternative future as a necessary um, part of the culture of people in slavery, to be able to both to survive and then to resist and then to overcome. And that's, that discussion has really stayed with me as I think about um, the work that I do and how to bring um, my own particular skills in, in creating visual work um, into the struggle that, that we're all in. Um, you know, we come from storytelling cultures, from oral cultures, and uh, as a visual artist, um, I think we have a challenge in, in, in so many ways in the ways in which we transmit um, culture today that is very different in terms of the collective um, uh, uh, creation of culture that many of us that, that were the history of our peoples. Um, I think uh, one of the things as as an artist is thinking about how we keep our art um, alive, meaning how do we keep it in constant conversation. Um, with the struggles that are happening uh, around us? How do we keep it in um, uh, a perspective of solidarity and internationalism with the struggles beyond those that are kind of right, uh, uh, that we are right in the middle of us? Um, and then what that looks like as a collective process. Um, and a lot of that for, for my work has meant um, just the conversations that we have, even the conversation we're having right now, um, but also kind of integrating that work into art builds or um, protests or bringing our, uh, my screen printing stuff out into the street and doing some um, street printing. Um, Riffing on, on what uh, Arun and, and Timmy and Lada um, were talking about, you know, one of the things about creating visual art is that um, it is very time specific. Right? I'm making something right now about a, uh, um, an issue that is currently alive. Um, that our struggles are really for the long game. 
our struggles, if it is um, a native struggle that has been 500 years long or struggles of colonization that have been decades and centuries long. And um, Arun talked about um, bringing an abolitionist imagination um, into this work. And, and um, so thinking about how artwork can contribute to keeping our struggles alive and engaged um, year in and year out and bringing that um, into uh, what we're doing. Um, at the same time, I think, um, you know, that your question, Mizui, was about kind of the imagination and, and um, but that imagination also can't be, I think, delinked from what, what's happening, you know, right now. And, and I think of some of the conversations that you and I have had about, you know, identifying the monster, um, identifying um, the monster, the prison industrial complex of those histories of colonization and genocide. and making sure that the work uh, that we do as artists and visual artists, musicians, poets, uh, can both identify the monster, call out the system, um, and pro provide vision of alternatives. Um, you can tell from, from my artwork, I was, I was also a big comics fan. I loved comic books. That's kind of what I grew up as uh, and through my art inspiration. Um, I studied architecture in school, and I remember one of my professors, who was also um, chair of Middle Eastern Studies, um, uh, looking at, you know, during one of these reviews and, and looking at the work that several of us had done, this, we were all working on, on um, projects about housing in the city. And he said to us, well, you know, architecture is essentially a colonizing project. Um, and that has stayed with me in thinking about the relationship of these global oppressions around colonization and what happens at home in urban development um, and trying to reflect on that um, both in my professional work and my activist work and in my nonprofit work, um, um, working on housing policy and in, in my artwork and just keeping that constant awareness um i think um the there may be some very uh as very different forms of oppression and very different uh intensity um very different impacts on people uh, but the system is the same um from here to palestine um from inside a prison to the neighborhood. Um, they are essentially systems around controlling land and controlling people. And so insofar as, as you know, sort of our limited work, our humble work as artists to identify those systems and to um, identify the agency of um, people, but also of, of land, of the struggles we have around uh, around land um, in, you know, this settled uh, empire that we live in. Um, and so I, you know, I, maybe I'll, I'll just end with, you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of great, great images. I'm throwing out my images. I think many of us know um, 
uh, um, you know, some amazing work that's out there. Um, but I'm not sure there's necessarily a magic to that work in, insofar as it is easily co-opted. Um, so I was joking with my friends at Just Seeds how um, I just got an email not so long ago from, um, from Facebook wanting to sit down and like, holy crap, what, what, you know, the, the, um, uh, the way that the system tries to suck up uh, our struggles and churn it out into um, new, new systems of consumption. Um, and the way we fight back uh, on that is um, by keeping that artwork um, constantly invigorated by being connected to struggles. And that's, that's really, I think, um, uh, 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 all there is to it. We have to be in it. We have to be in those struggles. Uh, we have to be in constant um, uh, communication and questioning, questioning ourselves. So I'll end there. I'm looking forward to, to the discussion to follow. Thank you so much for sharing your images and your reflections, uh, Fernando, and for all the incredible artwork you've done for uh, the movement and our organizations. So this is a question I'm going to ask um, to all our panelists, and then we will have some time for question and answer. So you could put that into um I think there's a place where you're doing it if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, it's not an easy question, but I think, you know, all of you have touched on some of these themes, all of these themes in your presentation. So just to kind of consolidate it and bring it back, you know, thinking about the political context that you all have raised, some of the challenges, right? It's this importing and exporting of ideologies tactics and strategies and technologies, you know, um, the rise in author authoritarianism in this country, but also globally, as we know, you know, this uh, well-developed infrastructure now of the war on terror, um, both domestically and all over the world, converging with the military industrial complex, prison industrial complex, and now a very well-developed border industrial complex. Um, and, of course, the deep roots of these histories, you all traced it back to, you know, settler colonialism, uh, racial capitalism, imperialism. So those are always these questions. Once you find out, oh, this is what's wrong with the world, right? Um, these are the challenges we face. But it'd be helpful maybe to think through, like, this is one challenge transformation in this current moment. So it's not easy. I don't know if anybody wants to jump in, but we can also start in order of speakers. Arun? Um, sure, I'll, I'll have a go first. I mean, what I, what I would say is, is um, firstly, like, it seems to me that we, the current situation that we're in, that context that you talked about, is not a permanent state of affairs. That's the first thing we have to understand. It's, it's going to collapse, right? It's it's like that's in a historical inevitability. And the question is, is is how you know like what role do we play in that? Do we do we um, act to transform the world in a way that we want, or is it? Are we going to just be kind of carried along in the tide of of the unraveling of 
of this uh, system of racial capitalism um, and and not actually act to transform it in a positive way, right? Um, but it's not it's not it can't survive. Right? I mean that's just obvious from from looking at, at how everything that's happening in the world right now. So so the, you know the thing that if we think about the United States, um, you know, like some before last we had 15 million young people um, uh, on the streets. Um, in the Black Lives Matter, you know, that matter movement. And that is something that, that we haven't seen anything like, like that on that scale since, I would say, the early 70s. Um, and uh, so we have, a, I think, you know, pe- people like Timmy are part of this, right? Like we have a generation of young people who are coming up who um, who don't buy the bullshit anymore, right? Like the, the, the whole story of US exceptionalism, I think, is done for them. And, and they are, you know, uh, people kind of make fun of them for being woke or whatever. But basically what they're saying is, is, you know, they understand that wealth is not going to trickle down in a racially capitalist society. They understand that we're not going to be able to get through climate change by just kind of like being an armed lifeboat, you know, trying to trying to protect ourselves while the rest of the world um, it gets devastated. That doesn't work anymore, right? We un- they understand that like prisons and borders and policing um, don't work for the majority of people in the world, right? Um, to secure ourselves. So, so the question is, is what happens to that sentiment that's out there? You know, we've got a taste of it uh, two summers back, right? It, you know, the, it doesn't just evaporate that energy, right? But it needs organization, organization to make it into a force that can bring about structural change, right? And that's the that's the thing that's so hard for us to get our heads around because. We just haven't been able to do it for a long time on the scale that we need, right? To build that kind of mass politic, which is the only way we're going to do this, right? There's no other way, right? Um, uh, but we just haven't been able to do it, um, you know, on that scale for quite a while. And so we've forgotten those methods, right? If you look at the history, you know, like what did it mean, you know, like Lara was mentioned the Black Panther Party, right? Like what did it mean to be in the Black Panther Party on a, on a um, you know, in 1968 on a daily basis. It's hard work. It's disciplined work. You know, you're putting your life on the line. You're putting your time down. You're saying, I'm going to have to spend hours and hours a week, you know, doing work for the movement. I'm going to read a load of books. I'm going to be quizzed on those books. I'm going to be out on the street, you know, in the in the cold, in, in the heat, in the rain, doing work, right? And that's that's kind of the mentality that we've lost a little bit because in our – in our neoliberal culture, like we're all about the instant quick fix, you know, like let's picture the new world we want and somehow we just tweet it out and we're going to get it. No, it's about that disciplined long-term work, right? Hard. It's going to take a lot, right? And we have to, I think, get our heads around that, you know, and people like Timmy are getting there, right? So, um, you know, but the thing is, is, is I think people are starting to see that um, and there's, there's signs of hope. And, you know, we can look at our history in this, in this part of the world and say, you know, there's two times when I think the United States was on a was in a kind of moment where things could go in a different direction. Like one was the the period um, after abolition of the 19th century, the Black Reconstruction period, when when you know there was that opening up um, of 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 creating a new kind of society that was based on caring, not killing. It was based on the reciprocity that constitutes us as human beings, right? And then another moment in the late 60s, early 70s. I think we're on the verge, possibly, of being able to build another moment like that, and hopefully, you know. This occasion, we can really fulfil the promises of our, those histories and and really transform um, and 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 build the kind of um, social relationships that that um, enable us to survive and thrive in in what we're about to face over the coming decades. 
Thank you, Arun, for that. Um, Lara, do you can you share from your organizing experience, you know, somehow uh, Urban Shield or another campaign where you've been able to bring some of these together and unlock the radical imagination and possibilities? Arun, I appreciate your your challenging question in, in recognizing or identifying what are the challenges that we're facing, but also what are those opportunities, and I. You know, we're being out organized, absolutely. We are being siloed in our work um, and we're also being criminalized, right? And so there's, those are the challenges, but I think the potential of solidarity and cross-movement building um, is both a threat to our opposition, but also the way forward. And so you you ask about Urban Shield. Stop Urban Shield was a campaign that AROC helped lead the broad coalition here in the Bay Area where we took on one of the largest SWAT training, weapons expos, militarized basically war games training that took place here in the Bay on the weekend of 9-11 every, every year, um, brought together agencies from across the world to train on what they termed emergency response, but was essentially war games training um, and brought everyone from firefighters, nurses, police departments, the state of Israel and other law enforcement agencies to share tactics and training, recognizing the internal enemy, right, that should be quelled. Um, and we organized a broad coalition to challenge that. And I think what Urban Shield represented was what a lot of our movements are all fighting against today, you know, whether it's the criminalization of immigrants, um, the expansion of policing, militarization, um, and the ongoing, you know, expansion of also the right wing movement here in the United States. It brought all of that together here in our backyard and actually provided us an opportunity to do that cross movement building and break those silos between our communities. And I think that is a great lesson in terms of what's possible in that our adversaries are constantly strategizing together. You know, we, as Fernando and others said so clearly, you know, we may be siloed, but the world is not. And, and the ways in which um, state powers function and how they also are able to employ their power and repression is very much a, a lesson we should take in terms of what we need to do to, to take that on, right? And, and that internationalism isn't just a, a thought or a concept or a value. It's really the reality of our conditions and has been always. And, and what we were able to do with the Stop Urban Shield campaign was bring a coalition of people that were impacted by SWAT, by everyday SWAT raids in their neighborhoods. People were impacted by ICE, people who were challenging white supremacy and the right-wing militias like the Oath Keepers, um, those of us who are at the receiving end of war in our homelands, right? And all come together understanding the shared experience we have here in the United States because of programs like Urban Shield, which brought war to our doorsteps, which brought the war, the daily reality of policing and the war on terror to become a normalized condition for here in, in the U.S. for emergency response and preparedness and actually ended and defunded, right? So because we were able to build a broad-based coalition that understood those intersections led by the communities most impacted, we were able to take advantage of the fact that our adversaries are coalescing, coordinating, sharing tactics, developing these really brutal programs like Urban Shield. And as a result of that, that's a political education moment for our own communities to go into the communities and hold town halls to talk about this program that many people didn't even know existed and mobilize faith, labor, community institutions to all see it as toxic, not only because 
policing is toxic, not only because militarization of policing is toxic, but also because understanding that this was connected to a broader issue of war making and the way in which we were experiencing it right here in our own backyards. And we were successful in learning from historic movements of divest, invest, and actually you know, forcing decision makers to completely defund this program and be part of the implementation process to redistribute those resources towards community needs, right? And be a part of the process of visioning what we want that money to go for. What is community preparedness? And I think that's a lesson of what's made possible, both because of our the strength and coalescing of our adversaries allows us to also do some political education in terms of our shared histories and experiences and what's made possible through solidarity and cross-movement building. Thank you. That's an incredible example and incredible organizing work. So kind of building off of this idea about um, the possibilities, you know, Timmy or Fernando, are there um, examples you would like to share in your organizing work as we vision, envision our future? I can go. I can go for Nana. I just had a few comments to add. I think what Arun and Laura shared is is amazing. Uh, I'll, the, the points I'll make are to the point of opportunities, and um, just a few things I wanted to add is that you know, being I've I'm I work with a lot of young people, and I would retweet Arun's comment that I have a lot of I'm inspired every day by young people um, that are mobilized that are more militant more have the analysis have the orientations and ethics that we need to really be building and moving and um and i think that gives me hope and inspiration but in a ways that i think forces us or myself maybe maybe you think of me as one of those young people but to double down in our commitment to throw down for you the for young people and, and future generations because ultimately you know all this talk of you know the end of the world and climate catastrophe you know who who are the folks that are going to be living through those con material conditions right so young people are it um, I will say some of the things that give me hope and uh, are, you know, building off the legacies of the radical 60s and 70s movements, the organizational formations that we saw globally in third world liberation movements. What gives me hope actually is the vast amount of experimentation that organizers and movements for social justice are, are doing with, whether that's around mutual aid. How are we moving to like redistribute resources in small, sometimes small, decentralized, you know, local ways to more bigger ways? You know, how are we experimenting with, you know, mutually reciprocal relationships in the here and now and, and uh, around meeting our each other's needs? And there's just I've read, seen and know so many different projects that are experimenting in those regards experimentation in terms of organizational forms and, and of attack and, and strategy. Um, you know, the Black Panther Party comes out of a particular organizational, you know, uh, orientation, right? That was more hierarchical and um, that we see modeled in, in, in different countries and political parties and groups, right? But I think something that gives me hope is globally, we see different types of structures, decentralized structures that may be, 
you know, in communication or in solidarity and aligned ideologically or even around certain particular targets, but are experimenting on the tactics and strategies to, to, to dismantle and chip away at these different institutions and systems. And there's lots of experimentation going on that I think is ultimately what's what's needed you know i'm kind of a it's kind of I, I will say that i've spent a lot of time reading the counter the u.s military counterinsurgency manual and one of the biggest things about that that book that they harp on is decentralized forms of execution and implementation you know a lot so the different not that we should be modeling our <laughs> our work but you know we are at war Right. We are at war with these forces and systems. And so we need to be real about how to situate ourselves and organize ourselves to effectively, um, you know, get what we need. Um, and then some, lastly, I'll say is something that's given me a lot of hope and honestly makes me believe in cultural work more these days than I think I was more skeptical, skeptical in the past is the movement for abolition, how all of the cultural work that was the seeds that were planted in political frameworks and ideology that was, you know, relentlessly seeded by movements like critical resistance and thinkers and critical political thinkers like folks like y'all um, that have laid the ideological groundwork, right, leading up to these moments of political social rupture. And then that is when those moments, in those moments are when, you know, abolition, you never know when those those sparks can turn into a flame and all of a sudden abolition is being talked about on the New York Times. So I think, you know, we have to be relentless in our approach to cultural <laughs> cultural counter warfare, if you will, and, and um, not underestimate the power of what, you know, especially in a day of communications were every immersive communication the metaverse if you will the power of being relentless in our political ideologies uh, and and our values and speak in and and, and doing that work uh, in tandem with you know on the ground organizers that can when those moments of crises you know crisis works both ways you know capitalism in the state takes advantage for crisis of crisis but we can do that too Right. And, and to, to use those moments to push push the needle and, and, and blow the window open in terms of what we think is what we know is to, is possible. Um, yeah. And that makes me hopeful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Timmy. Um, we're, Fernando. Why? Um, I think Timmy just uh, um, summed it up. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, you know, all you were saying about the, the war and the role of culture in that war that we're in, and I think of the explosion of street art that came out um, last summer in the wake of George Floyd and the uprising and how much artwork young people were creating and putting up on the walls and on social media and you know, there was a, this sort of explosion that was very um, uh, um, part of this sort of decentralized part of, of, of the war that we're in and I think of you know the that and particularly that kind of work um, the, the work that transforms public space 
um, whether temporarily or permanently. So in Oakland, um, there is both the work that um, was put up on all of these boarded up stores in downtown Oakland uh, that is now being more permanently installed in liberated spaces in East Oakland. Um, and so thinking about the artwork and the culture um, in which the formation of our ideologies and worldviews um, happen very much, you know, in one case sense, you know, internally, like it's, it's in how we understand the world, but we operate in space. We operate um, in those ideologies are contained by space and shaped by space. And uh, I think those, those interventions um, um, from, you know, graffiti to whatever else it might be, we pasted posters to the background of music, um, begin to shape um, some of that ideology. I think there's a part of that as well that is um, the a part that is about the joy and the beauty of resistance. You know, the, that moment um, in a mobilization or a protest in which we are um, filled with that power of being with others um, in that fight. Um, and sometimes, you know, that, that turns into the scary moment. Um, but there, you know, how do we hold on to that, that joy and that beauty? Um, and oftentimes that is in our artwork and in our music and in all of these things that, that come, come out of it. Um, the last part of it, I think, is, is because it is a war, it is about building up um, our numbers. And our communities are often very contradictory, right? We have within our own uh, ethnic communities, race, uh, gender, there are the conservative elements, the progressive elements. And in, in that struggle, there is a role um, in that cultural work to you know, win hearts and minds, to build up our side. And that's, I think, where um, that that kind of uh, tension between um, building up the joy and the beauty, the presence, um, we will not be silenced, we will not be made invisible, um, uh, uh, is, is central to that, along with we must name the monster, we must name the system, and we must call it out. Um, and that's just a bunch of ideas. There's no no answers, but I think, you know, I, 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 it's, it's the struggle that I've Space as an artist is, is always you know, those questions of what do we emphasize, how do we build up, who do we represent, um, where in that representation am I leaving out other voices, um, how do we build up a, a, a real solidarity and internationalism, and how does my little speck of, of artwork contribute to that? Thank you so much. I'd like to welcome back Nadia from Center for Constitutional Rights. Um, and um, there, there you are. Go ahead. We are 
I mean, what a remarkable conversation. Thank you, Mizue, for creating this space. And to Arun, to Lara, Timmy, Fernando, what a gift. You took us through kind of also an emotional experience, just really contextualizing the harms and the gravity of what we're up against. And then leading us into, Fernando, this this joyful, um, you know, what to me you were saying, joyful militancy, it's resistance, it's the joy in community, it's how we locate hope. And I think this conversation is about that. It's that we locate hope also in community. And I am so honored to be part of this community with you and to be in struggle um, with you as comrades and as friends and as teachers. I learned so much, Timmy, when you said you were taking notes, I'm like, Notebook is filled. So thank you. I am just closing out this evening um, and inviting you to stay in touch with us, with the Center for Constitutional Rights, with our partners. You know that Haymarket Books is going to keep organizing these amazing conversations. So support them. Um, tune in. You heard from AROC. Um, Follow them at ArabOrganizing.org, the dissenters, we are dissenters.org. Fernando has some great art. We put it in YouTube um, in the link that he contributed to dissenters in their project called Demilitarize. You can find that on Just Seeds. Arun wrote an incredible piece called Abolish National Security in the Transnational Institute Report. So check that out. We'll send all of this to you all. Um, and then there's a sneak peek um, in terms of kind of the visionary work and and where we want to situate um, situate our our labor and our organizing in in the world that we're trying to build and so immigrant defense projects and CCR are about to drop a new report um, that I hope will spark that kind of a conversation and it's called cruel by design voices of resistance from immigration detention. It's dropping later this month. It's focused on the stories of five people who were detained by ICE, draws from dozens of declarations from lawsuits. And it highlights, you know, immigration in the same way that you're talking about all of these systems are not, our immigration laws aren't broken. They are cruel by design. And so we demand a transformation of these systems. And so we hope that you'll, you'll, follow that and you'll read that report um, and build with us. It's time, like we are tired also of resisting this cruel world that we have and we must build the world that we want. And I know we have everything that we need. I'm looking at this screen and I really believe that. So thank you for your scholarship, for your art, for your vision, for your deep love of our communities. Um, we will win. Um, Lara, you said our movements are steadfast and our communities are steadfast. And so I believe that. I believe you. Thank you all so much. Thank you to Mizue. And I know you have some closing thank yous for all of us, but I, I hope everyone has a great night. Thank you again. Thank you. That was so beautifully put. Um, the gra Expressing a lot of gratitude to all our panelists today, um, Arun, Lara, Timmy, Fernando, just for being with us, but also for all that you do and bring to this world. Um, and for the partners in this series, we express thanks to Haymarket as well, Sean Larson, our producer, that Dana Blanchard, who helped dream up this series, um, our interpreters, they worked tirelessly, uh, Libby Gatlin and Craig Rideway. And thanks to you all um, 
for coming and, and just being in this conversation with us. We look forward to working with you all to build that future that we all know we need. Abolish national security. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.